You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Football season is here, and it's time to bet with my bookie. Use promo code Gators and double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today. Only at my bookie. Gators breakdown. Because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. And joining me for this episode is co-host Will Miles. You can find him on Twitter at WillMilesSEC and his site, readandreaction.com. Will, you had the week off last week. We had Denny Thompson on talking uh, Gators quarterbacks and Georgia quarterbacks and... um, Really uh, interesting episode uh, there. I wish we would have talked more about uh, Jeff Sims, Georgia Tech's quarterback, that also Denny Thompson <laughs> got the train and uh, upset FSU last week uh, for, for, the, for the Yellow Jackets. So that was a fun one. But uh, did you get to watch some football over the weekend, my friend? Oh, man, yeah, I did. My, my son had a baseball game during what I thought was the Florida State-Georgia Tech game. And then I got back from his baseball game, and oh, it was still on. We were, I, well, had it, I had it, Well, I had it recording, and so I had to extend it by about three hours to have the whole thing <laughs> recorded. But, yeah, I got to go back and watch it and, and see pretty decent offensive line play. I don't, I don't know what you'd call it. it, it decent for, is for, maybe for a quarter? <laughs> for a quarter, and then it all fell apart. But... <laughs> Hey, it was fun. You know, the best part about college football, like in the NFL, like you just feel sorry for Bengals fans. Like you sort of go, oh, look at them over there. Like you're a Steelers fan. uh, (laughs) Even then, like the Bengals have just been so bad. You know, my experience in the NFL is you you just sort of look at the guys who are downtrodden and go, oh, look at them. But when it's when it's when it's college football, that's not the way it is. And the the Florida Twitter claws were out. After uh, after Georgia Tech pulled that one out, especially considering that they couldn't make a kick and it should have been like forty to thirteen or something. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, hey, it, and we don't even play Florida State this year, so we just just you know we get to revel in everybody else beating them. Oh yeah, well, and <laughs> they they got an interesting schedule coming up, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you got Miami coming up on the schedule in a couple of weeks, and then Clemson's coming up later on. I think they play Notre Dame too, so it could be a rough first year for Norvell. The the only thing I would say is that. If you think about Florida's first conference game under Mullen, mm-hmm. you would have thought the program was going in the wrong direction after they lost to Kentucky as well. And because what so, we what we say, oh, it's the same old, same old. Offense couldn't get going, defense couldn't tackle, and yeah, yeah it turned around. And so you know, Norvell's going to have an opportunity to turn it around, but I'm not sure that his uh, his track record necessarily says it's going to be quickly. And, you know, it may be that they pulled Different the trigger set of a little circumstances bit. circumstances this year. <laughs> well, absolutely, right? <laughs> yeah. But that, but that's part of it is everybody yep. has to deal with the same thing. Florida State made their choices last year in terms of in terms of dismissing Taggart. Um, you know, they've made their choice in terms of bringing in Norvell, and, and we'll see whether it pays off. I, I'm not ready to bury Florida State after one game, but but it's pretty fun to, to give them some crap on Twitter, that's for sure. 
plenty of, plenty of other people will bury him for us. So <laughs> uh, we'll uh, we'll get into some quick news here before we uh, dive into the meat of the episode of George, Justin Shorter getting his eligibility, getting cleared from the NCAA. And uh, I threw out uh, on Twitter yesterday to everybody to throw some questions at us. Uh, so we got a few questions we'll get to. We'll try to get to a lot of them. Uh, we got a lot planned for this episode where we're going to talk a lot, whole lot of wide receivers and, and Justin Shorter anyway uh, there. So um, hopefully we'll get to, to, to more of them. But we'll kind of um, – you know, press conference for, you know, we got to talk to John Hevesy and, and uh, Damian Pierce. We'll hit on that uh, later on uh, in another episode if, if we need to get back to it. Or nothing earth-shattering uh, there. But uh, Florida did release uh, the COVID numbers today. So the Florida football team has had six more positive test results for COVID-19 since uh, last release its testing numbers a week ago. The Gators now have seven positive cases uh, in, in the month of September. So, uh, and kind of, you know, not football, but lacrosse and baseball have been paused. So, um, those, uh, sports there, uh, no longer taking or not taking part right now. Well, this was always the worry, of course, when, when students return back to campus, uh, and kind of expected probably in a way as well. You know, one reason the SEC delayed the start of the season was probably for, you know, for an, an issue like this. So now we don't know who has been affected here for the football team, but, uh, you know, now we're probably looking at the possibility of, of some players not being able to suit up in, 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 in game, game one next week. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Mullen said he'll probably share with us next Monday um, you know, injury report and you know, who's not going to play and all that kind of stuff. He's really keeping the roster and all that stuff very close to the vest uh, right now. So, you know, how, how will all the, the contact tracing play into this and, and who had to be held out just because of that and, and not even testing positive? That would be an interesting part of it to watch, you know, the players will have to be quarantined until cleared by uh, campus health officials. And Mullen has said that, you know, there's been false positives and, you know, but wouldn't dive into do that aspect of it any more than just saying that there's been false positives. So we'll, we knew this would show up at some point. Hopefully it all passes without much impact uh, and everyone affected is doing well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the first thing, right? Is you want to, you want to make sure that everybody's feeling okay, that everybody's doing well, and that they're taking the proper precautions and not rushing anybody back to the field, not only because you don't want further injury or the myocarditis type of risk that's out there, but also because you don't want anybody getting infected who doesn't need to be infected because you do need to keep people away once, once, they've, once they've tested positive or when they've been contact traced who have been in contact with, with somebody who has tested positive. So obviously that's the first thing. I think the second thing is is that you know we know we're going to have to deal with this sort of thing at some point in the year. These are young kids. Young kids are going to hang out with, with other young kids, and so you only need one person to do the wrong things to bring it in. And, and even in that case, you know, it's entirely possible that somebody brings it in and they've done, been doing all the right things. It just so happens that they come into contact with somebody who, who has it. So it's not necessarily a blame thing. It's just you know the reality is is that in – in close environments, which is what college is, you're going to run a risk to get the virus. But, um, you know, the other thing is, is that it's probably a good thing that it's happening before Ole Miss, as opposed to in November, right before Georgia. And those are the other things that we need to take into consideration is I think every team is going to have to weather something like this throughout the year. We saw it in baseball where the Marlins had to weather it for a little bit. And then after that, didn't really have any issues. Saw it with the Cardinals as well, had to weather weather it, and then didn't have any issues. So I suspect that each team's going to have to weather one of these things. I doubt it'll be two, but, you know, who knows. But I suspect every team's going to have to weather them. The only other thing would be you could do like LSU, infect everybody, and then have Orgeron come out saying your team has herd immunity. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the uh, 
that's the CDC recommended way to deal with it. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is one of the things is a guy who gets it now isn't going to have it two months from now. I mean, that's sort of the reality is you should have immunity, at least for the season once you've been infected. So hopefully they're doing a lot of cross training. They're making sure that everybody is ready to go in different spots. And, you know, that there's, there's a reason why freshmen are going to be allowed to play without losing eligibility this year. This is one of them, right? Is you're going to have to have people step up. You're going to have to force them into situations where maybe they wouldn't have been forced in before. And, you know, for all the people who talk about coaching and development over recruiting, it's one more step. You know, is it, is it a matter of just having more talent or is it a matter of getting the talent that you have ready to play? And I think in 2020, that's going to be a much bigger deal than it has been in years past. COVID. Herd immunity. Go Tigers. Hey, I tell you what, I mean, if I'm going to take medical advice, it's, it's going to be from it's going to be from that guy. I mean, you got to know something about medicine to get a tan like that. So, In Baton Rouge, no less. So. Oh, man. All right. Yeah, so that's it. Uh, hopefully, like we said, no, no, no major player there uh, for Florida. Uh, no major uh, position grouping or whatever uh, will be uh, hit too hard, and hopefully everybody is okay as we move forward and closer to uh, kicking off versus Ole Miss uh, next week. So before we get started, uh, remember, you can find Gators Breakdown merchandise at ebay.com slash str slash Gators Breakdown. That's ebay.com slash str slash Gators Breakdown for all the new Gators Breakdown merchandise. And remember, you can find Gators Breakdown on news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. There you'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes as well as news for jacks coverage of the Gators. Plenty, plenty of coverage on C.J. Henderson and his big debut for the Jaguars here. Uh, at News 4 Jack. So if I want to keep up with C.J. Henderson and uh, uh, Juwan Taylor, all the rest of the Gators uh, and, and the Jaguars, you can head to News4Jacks.com. Please share, rate, and review Gators Breakdown. Subscribe on YouTube. And if you're watching, hit that like button right now. Uh, or you find us on your favorite podcast platform. And follow Gators Breakdown on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, at Gators Breakdown. So, well, of course, as we said, Justin, big news, Justin Shorter, wide receiver there, gets his uh, clearance from the NCAA. Uh, we've been waiting, 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 and about two weeks before the season starts, Shorter gets his uh, clearance from the NCAA. So that'll lead us to our first question, and something we know we were going to talk about anyway. This comes from SEC Power at Scott Sweat 1010 He says, Mullen seems really high on Shorter. Does this wide receiver core have the potential to be better than last year? Pitts, Grimes, and Shorter on the field together could be dangerous. So uh, potential, you know, scary word uh, there. Can they be better? I, I don't know. I don't know if they'll be better. I can say maybe different uh, in, in a way, and we'll get into some stuff here. I uh, kind of said it last week. I think this wide receiver core has a chance to be more explosive uh, than, than the last year's group, but I still want to know who's that dependable player. Where's Mr. Dependability come from? Uh, and you know, got some good-looking stuff uh, coming up here uh, in the next few minutes, kind of looking at that. But, you know, um, Mullen was asked about Shorter because we got to talk to him yesterday uh, in a press conference, and he had this to say about the six foot six foot four, 230-pound-ish wide receiver. Well, uh, like I said, we're still waiting on a roster. So uh, hopefully he's been uh, – the numbers will be updated. But about six four, two thirty for Justin Shorter – Mullen had to say he has a great attitude. He works hard, very physical player, talented, has size, has speed. Mullen said in his presser on Monday, he can make explosive plays down the field. But also one of the things to me is, and I mean great physical blocker at the point of attack. You can see he's a little bit of an older guy. He's not a new guy coming in. He's a veteran guy that, plays some, that has played some football. So he understands the importance of the complete game. 
He also went on to say about Shorter that blocking is just as important as catching a 50-yard touchdown pass. And when you understand that, you have the opportunity to become an impact player. And then Mullen goes on to mention that Shorter is making strides, you know, because when you pair his work ethic with coaching uh, from the wide receiver coach, Billy Gonzalez, and you've seen what Billy Gonzalez has been able to do in his since they're coming in, you know, this Florida receivers wasn't thought of when Mullen, in, in Mullen's first year, wasn't highly thought of, and then leaves, you know, one of the most highly regarded wide receiver units in, in Gators history here. So, you know, Will, in, in trying to replace so many pieces um, from, you know, the, the wide receiver room from, from last year's team, uh, the former five star recruit will try and, and, and you know become like so many other transfers Dan Mullen has brought in and, and become an impact player yeah I mean you know we've seen Grimes and Van Jefferson at the receiver position were able to come right in and make contributions Jefferson was pretty much the number one wide receiver right from the jump um, Grimes has taken a little bit of time to develop but certainly you know has become more and more and more comfortable in the system as as the uh, as the years have gone on I, I think you know, Shorter has – one of the things that I think is interesting is, is his comments about his blocking because that's one of the things that Mullen really emphasizes with his wide receivers. It's one of the reasons why certain guys don't get on the field while other guys do get on the field just because if you can't block for those wide receiver screens and those bubble screens, especially if the offense struggles at all running the ball, then that's just not a wide receiver you can have on the field. That's one of the things that the four wide receivers last year who left – you know, Tyree Cleveland didn't necessarily – get a whole lot of targets when he was out there. In fact, he got targeted less often than Trevon Grimes or yeah. Jacob Copeland for the year. But Cleveland was a extraordinarily willing and gifted blocker, and having somebody out there who can do that is an important thing. So, you know, I, I think it, Mullen's offense tends to work in levels where you've got guys at different positions and guys with different depths. And Tyree Cleveland was the guy who could sort of take the top off the defense, or at least that was the goal last year, was to have him take the top off the defense. But that's not a guy you get to often in your progressions unless the offensive line's really doing its job. And so I suspect that's kind of what we'll probably see from Shorter this year is if they really think he can take the top off the defense, they're going to see him in a blocking role, and then you're going to see him in – in situations where they want to take a shot. You know, if you look at the four receivers last year, Jefferson, Hammond, Swain, and Cleveland, um, Cleveland was targeted 35 times. Jefferson was targeted 70 times. Swain was targeted 58 times. So, um, And then Hammond was targeted 30. So out of those four, only 18% of the targets went to Cleveland. I think that's probably about right. That's probably where he's going to wind up. Yeah, mixed reviews uh, coming out for shorter out of camps and stuff. So uh, we'll see uh, where that goes, and maybe he can be a, a big time contributor. But of course, you know everybody's still looking at Trevon Grimes, Jacob Copeland, Kadarius Tony as being uh, the main targets for now because there's just no, so much more well known uh, than everybody else. And uh, so, well, I wanted to go back to last week's episode when discussing the wide receiver core, and you know I was discussing Mullen's comments on Kadarius Tony becoming more of a complete wide receiver, and I brought up the point, uh, you know, that this group could possibly be more explosive but you know i want to see the, the wide receiver that can be counted on in passing situations to go make a play and, and keep the chains moving so i uh, looked up some wide receiver stats uh, in the passing situation of third down and four yards plus you know that's pretty much a, a dead set passing situation for most teams out there in college football and then and, and how that play if it resulted in, in a first down so you know how much did the wide receivers that were lost from last season contribute in that regard and of course you know big thanks to sec stat cat for providing these stats and all the parameters that we could sit in uh there and, and get this going so 
Van Jefferson caught the ball the most in this situation, and, and no surprise there, uh, really. And he was targeted 13 times with 11 catches for 106 yards. Of those 11 catches, five resulted in a first down for a 45% conversion rate there. Freddie Swain and LaMichael P. Ryan had the second most catches in this situation of third down and four yards plus. Swain with nine catches on 12 targets, uh, and uh, six of nine Six of the nine catches went for a first down, so a pretty uh, high percentage there. LaMichael Pirine also with nine catches on 12 targets. Uh, his went for like 81 yards, only two of the nine going for first down. That was a little bit of a surprise there. I thought it would be a little bit higher uh, for Pirine coming out of the backfield or lining up uh, as a receiver there. So now we finally get in on, on the current pass catchers here, Will. And Trevon Grimes was next with the most catches, seven catches on eight targets. Five of those catches went for a first down. Uh, Kyle Pitts with one less catch on third down and four four yards plus. Uh, and Pitts with six catches on 11 targets. Of his six catches in that scenario, three went for a first down. So Josh Hammond with four catches on five targets. Uh, three went for a first down. Jacob Copeland, three catches on five targets. All three of his catches were converted to first downs. Tyree Cleveland, two catches on two targets. Uh, so, you know. His conversion uh, rate there was was pretty good uh, there. So, Will, uh, albeit with a small sample size uh, than the rest, Jacob Clopin made the most of his limited chances in, in third down passing scenarios with converting all three catches into first downs. Josh Hammond was second in that regard uh, by only missing one conversion. Trevon Grimes converted 71% of his catches uh, in that scenario to first downs, followed by Freddie Swain at 67%. Uh, so, surprisingly, you know, the two main targets – had the worst conversion rate. Kyle Pitts at 50% uh, and Van Jefferson at 45%. So granted, they were targeted more uh, and defenses knew the ball was going there more in those situations. So that's pretty understandable. Uh, but what, all, what that also tells me is you know, those two opened it up for the rest of the group. So now can, can Grimes and Copeland do that when, when they're the starters, when they're looked at uh, of you know, being the leaders out there? Uh, and also an interesting note, there's no Kadarius Tony on that list and you know, missed some games last season, limited playing time. Um, so you know, that plays a part. But uh, also it's a big question for him, like I said last week, is can he be uh, a valuable part in that you know, third down, four-yard-plus scenario and converting some first downs? Uh, you know, if he's really going to be more of a complete wide receiver, you know, scenarios like that is, is where he needs to, to make his mark. Uh, I, had, I did go back to 2018 to kind of see what he had there, and he had – Two catches on six targets in that scenario, uh, and uh, you know two went for first downs. So you know the, the two that he did catch uh, went for uh, first downs there. So pretty interesting, Will, that uh, the, the two guys, you know, two guys coming back are were pretty high in that regard, and we'll see if they can, uh, as the guys in this wide receiver core, can, can continue the conversion rate there. Yeah, I mean the interesting thing is is that uh, out of the number of catches, thirty five percent of them went to, you know. Tony Pitts, Copeland, or Grimes. When you look at those four guys, and those are four of the returning guys, you would have expected more of those third and four opportunities, at least I would have, more than 65% of those, to go to Jefferson, Hammond, Swain, and Cleveland. And it just sort of proves the point that Mullen is going to spread the ball around and that he's going to build a deep wide receiver core. And and that even if you look at the more broader numbers for the overall season in 2019, Jefferson, Hammond, Swain, and Cleveland had 193 targets, and Tony Pitts, Copeland, and Grimes had 173. So the ball gets spread around in this offense. The question to me, uh, you know, I, I think people think, but who's going to step up and be the number one wide receiver? But last year, 
four, five, six, and seven, when you include Pitts in that group, four, five, six, and seven were really, really, really effective. And when you've got that kind of depth, the defense, even if it's playing in a dime defense, is going to have trouble. Um, is going to is going to struggle to cover you. I'm wondering who four, five, six, and seven is going to be this year. That that's maybe the depth of the position is not more important, but the depth of the position is going to be something that's an indicator of how good this offense can be. Just because you want to be able to send a guy deep and then give him a blow on the sideline, and to be able to do that, you got to have somebody who can step in and and make a difference. And you know, even when you think about Kyle Pitts, Lucas Kroll was there last year. Is Keon Zipper going to be able to step up into that role, sort of in that second tier of wide receivers or second tier of receivers? Those those are sort of the things I'm thinking about when I look at this, because from an explosive play standpoint, those 173 targets, the Tony Pitts, Copeland, and Grimes had 24 explosive plays. And Jefferson, Hammond, Swain, and Cleveland only had 27 on 193. So their explosive play percentage was basically identical, which, again, sort of indicates that you're not going to be losing a lot in terms of your ability to go downfield with the guys who are stepping in. The question is going to be the guys who step in for them on the back end. Mm -hmm. Are they going to be able to maintain the production, or is it just going to be those four guys? And if you get an injury, or if some, you know, if if you get a get a pandemic rolling through the the position group, are you going to have people to step in? And and I think that's maybe where the production is going to is going to wane a little bit if we don't have guys step up. You know, guys like Xavier Henderson and and Jaquavian Frazier's and those sorts of guys step in and be able to pick up the slack on the backside. Yeah, so of course, uh, quarterback plays into this a little bit as well <laughs> going into that stat. So I kind of wanted to see what Kyle Trask, you know, of course, this is a lot of receiver talk because of Justin Shorter, but, you know, relies so much on the quarterback there. So Kyle Trask in this scenario of third down and four yards plus, um, 39 of 56 for a 70% completion percentage. Really, really good there. 36% of the attempts went for first downs. Of the 39 completed passes uh, in that scenario, 51% went for first down. Compare that to Joe Burrow. Uh, not really far behind there. Burrow, 43 of 61. Also 70% completion percentage like Trask. 41% of the attempts went for first downs. 58% completion percentage for Burrow compared to Trask, 51% uh, there. So, um, you know, Burrow, you know, of course, putting up numbers there. But Kellamon, another quarterback uh, that... Uh, Kyle Trask is really compared to a good bit. 33 of 60, so 45% completion percentage, so less completions on more attempts than Trask. And his completion percentage was 25% less than Trask on third down and four yards plus. 29% of attempts went for first downs, while 63% of his completions went for first downs. So if he actually completed the pass, Will, there was a good chance it was getting for it, it was going for a first down. But actually completing the pass in that scenario was difficult for Mon. So if he got it to the receiver, good chance they were converting that first down. But he had some issues uh, getting there. So just behind Burrow overall for Trask and much better than Mon on third down passing situations, Will. You're on mute, Will. <laughs> Ah, so I think the Burrow comparison is flawed because he only threw 61 attempts on that situation. Trask threw 56, but Burrow threw like 200 more passes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trask did through the year. So one of the reasons why he wasn't as successful or was equally as successful on third and fours at LSU was not in third and four an awful lot. Especially, against, Mon, especially against Florida. <laughs> yeah, I think the Mon comparison is apt just because the, um, you know, Mond is who he is on third down. And and granted, he hasn't had a whole lot of protection. But 
when the protection is broken down, he has shown to be a flawed quarterback when it comes to being able to complete the ball, and that sort of tells the story. And Trask, one of the, like there, one of the reasons I think there's a ceiling on what Trask can do is because he was so consistent across all situations. You look at third and long, he was really really good. You look at second and long, he was really really good. You look at first and ten, he was really really like basically. He is the same quarterback on first and 10 as he is on third and four, as he is on third and 10, as he is on third and 17. And usually you see guys, you go, oh, this guy can work on this particular situation. I don't know that I can say that about Trask. I think, you know, every time I look at any sort of completion percentage number, he's sitting there at 68, 69, 70%. Every time I look at his, you know, his explosive plays. It's always sort of sitting there in, I think, the 10 to 11% range. Like, there's just, he does a lot of things really, really well. I'm not sure there's a place for him to necessarily completely upgrade this year. But at the same time, it makes me feel really good that the guy's going to complete 70% of his passes in every situation because against most of the competition, that's going to be enough to win and enough to move the offense. Um, you know, when the when the windows get a little bit tighter against teams like Georgia, that's where it becomes important to be able to run the ball. I think that's actually where the biggest bang for your buck comes from the Florida offense this year is they're going to have to run the ball. And if they run the ball, the windows will open up a little bit more for Trask. And all of a sudden – you know, that third and four that he completes to a player like P. Ryan, let's say it's Lorenzo Lingard this year or, or some other running back, all of a sudden that third and two where the guy gets tackled right behind the line of scrimmage turns into an explosive play because they had to honor a play fake or they had to honor that Trask was going to run the ball around the corner on a read option. Like, those are the things I think that are going to make the biggest difference this year is just taking advantage of his accuracy by having a running game that opens things up. All right, all right. So, well, man, anything else on uh, shorter and then the wide receivers and uh, all that, how that's going to play out? Uh, of course, you know, big news. Uh, to me, it's just, you know, shorter just adds one more piece to, you know, there's still probably a lot of figuring out. I think you know, who, like I said, who the main guys are. But, you know, this is just one more piece uh, of here of trying to figure out how you're going to replace that group from last year. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was some talk earlier this year that Tony and Copeland and 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 Pitts might might end up opting out because of COVID, and certainly Shorter would be really critical if that was the case. And and if there's some injuries, he might end up being a critical piece. I don't know that you ever want to rely on a guy who's got 15 catches in his freshman and sophomore years as you know a linchpin for what you're going to do. I mean, maybe he turns into that, but you don't want to rely on it. And I think the good news is, is Florida's in a position where they don't have to rely on it. He can be a key cog in the wheel, but he doesn't have to be Percy Harvin. Um, and I don't think it's fair to ask him to be Percy Harvin either. I, I think those guys have different skill sets, and 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 we'll see what he can do. At the same time, the idea that he can make explosive plays and that Mullen's particularly calling that out does mean that even with a limited understanding of the playbook and limited reps, there are things he can probably do right from the start that you might not be able to do with an offensive lineman or you might not be able to do with a, with a linebacker or something like that. Whereas a wide receiver just sitting on the outside running routes and blocking should be easier to pick up, should be able to sort of acclimate to the program and to the scheme quick enough that he can make a contribution early on. So, I mean, I think it's a significant thing that he's been deemed eligible, particularly with what we talked about earlier about not everybody's always going to be, not everybody's always going to be healthy maybe every week and you're going to need a lot of depth. And so he adds depth. He also adds talent. He just hasn't converted that talent into production yet. But let's be honest, that's also one of Mullen's specialties, right? Is getting the guys who come in and making them produce to the level of their recruiting ranking. He seems to have done a better job of that than just about anybody in the country. And so I'm excited to see what he can do with Shorter. 
All right, all right. So before moving on, a quick word from my bookie. Winning season returns at my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means insane props, epic bonuses, and the craziest cross-sport wagers. At my bookie, winning season means watching live sports and betting live sports all season long. The NFL has returned and more college football is being played. That means action-packed Saturdays and Sundays and huge cash prizes. Get in on the action. Use promo code GATERS and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games that you bet. Bet with the best this football season for your chance to win big. Use promo code GATERS and double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today only at my bookies. So... All right, let's get into some questions here, and uh, we're going to start here with Brad Dugan, 1987, at Brad Dugan87 on Twitter. And he goes, with Jamie Newman leaving Georgia, will this be the best chance for us to regain and reclaim the East? And, well, we, of course, we've talked plenty <laughs> about that this offseason. This, yes, this is Florida's best chance of, of reclaiming the East here. Uh, with you know all the questions surrounding Georgia, all the new pieces missing spring, Jamie Newman now you know relatively new uh, news that he's not going to play quarterback, uh, opting out, uh, and then you know, so with or without Jamie Newman, you know this was going to be Florida's best chance. Uh, I wasn't that high on Newman to begin with, and uh, this offense maybe better under J T Daniels or DeJuan Mathis, but I still don't know how good. Uh, the Newman news doesn't really sway my thoughts on the season. I like you know Florida's chances anyway. Uh, but going to uh, some you know, ESPN's had some pretty good articles uh, the last um, week or so, kind of previewing the season a bit and, and some some of the hot topics. And, you know, of course, Florida, Georgia is a big topic uh, here, but also, you know, college football playoff talk. And um, so ESPN asked which teams they asked coaches uh, around the country, which teams could make their college football debut during this quirky season. The odd circumstances, and this is what they had to say, you know, the odd circumstances around the 2020 season from the pandemic, determining player availability to the absence of significant non-league games could create opportunities for potential playoff newcomers. Some coaches aren't so sure, though. So one coach was quoted as to say, and it's going to be harder. Um, I think we see the same old, same old, because they've got better players, they've got more depth. This does not seem like a Cinderella year. Another Power 5 coach noted that the schedule models, and we've talked about this, Will, the conference only or, you know, the conference games plus one really increased the difficulty. And he says here, you know, the way the SEC set it up, there's no way an underdog is going to beat five top 25 teams. And, uh, you know, we, we've discussed, you know, difficulties in playing in the SEC, and you know, I think we kind of agree with that point too. So, but, um, you know, some of these coaches uh, that they were asked about, you know, a college football playoff participant in Florida was picked you know, from these coaches as uh, you know, if they're looking at teams around the country that have not made the college football playoff yet. Of course, Florida's a hot pick. Uh, one coach did say Dan is really good uh, the more he's been around a quarterback and Trask understands that system. A power five head coach said, I think Florida has a big time shot to get there this year, although their third game at Texas A&M will tell us a lot about them. Uh, kind of weird that a coach out there is just singling out that game <laughs> about how much it's going to tell us about Florida. Uh, so uh, he says, Mullen, Mullen also kept veteran defensive coordinator Todd Grantham, a finalist uh, for the Mississippi State head coaching job this past offseason. Grantham turned down the Cincinnati Bengals defensive coordinator job two years ago. Um, so the quote here, and we'll get into more of this even later, Will, he goes, the teams who have continuity from last year to this year in regards to their coaching staffs and have and not having to learn new schemes and things like that, those are the teams best equipped to handle this year. 
uh, had to handle that this year. A Power 5 offensive coordinator told ESPN. He says that's Alabama, Clemson, Oklahoma, all of the usual suspects. But he says, but Florida's in that group too. So it uh, goes hand-in-hand hand with the uh, next piece we'll discuss here with ESPN, Will. But uh, no surprise with all the um, college football preview magazines that we've you know read over the, the past couple months. Um, you know, there's always a comparison of Florida and Georgia here, but, you know, even taking it a step further, you know, there's still, uh, still some talk of their still, still some talk of the Gators in the college football playoff race as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the wise thing to do. If you think Florida is going to be the second best team in the sec. Now, I mean, I think most people think they're going to be somewhere between second and fourth. I think most people have Alabama first and then it's sort of a Georgia LSU and, and Florida battle. I think most people think Florida is probably better than LSU. I think Georgia is probably better than LSU. So now you've got Georgia and Florida fighting it out for that top spot from a college football playoff standpoint. Here's the reality, right? Ohio state and Penn state and Michigan probably aren't going to have a seat at the table. It doesn't look like. Maybe maybe they find some way to slink back in. But as of right now, they're not going to have a seat at the table. Notre Dame probably doesn't have a seat at the table, or at least we'll have to share one with Clemson, which means you're not getting Clemson and Notre Dame as an independent into the, into the playoff. And teams like Oregon and Washington and Stanford aren't going to get in because there's no Pac-12 football. So when you start looking at sort of the top 12 teams in terms of talent, I mean, Florida's right up there in, in like the, you know, seventh or eighth spot probably for overall talent up with like the Oklahomas and the Texases of the world, um, you know, right around where Clemson is and, and, you know, probably a little bit below Alabama and Georgia. But, you know, again, you've got all that experience coming back. So if you think experience is going to be more valuable, then you say, hey, Florida can beat Georgia and two teams are going to probably make it from the SEC. If you think that the talent is more valuable, then maybe you say Georgia's going to beat Florida, but and you've got Alabama and Georgia in the championship. So I, I think that's kind of where that comes from, is there's just more open spots this year, right? That There's almost no scenario that I can see where two SEC teams don't make it unless they just cannibalize each other in the 10-game schedule in conference. But then what do you do? And you're putting Clemson and Notre Dame in the same tournament after Clemson has beaten Notre Dame twice. I mean, in that case, then Notre Dame would have had to beat Clemson once and and vice versa, right? Somewhere along the way, um, you know. The, after the, what we saw in the Big Twelve, I can't imagine you get two teams from there in. So yeah, I think the the only possible way um, that you don't get two SEC teams in is if Georgia beats Florida, represents the East, lost to Alabama in the regular season, and loses to Alabama again in the SEC championship game. Yeah, but even then, you wonder whether Florida gets another shot the same way Alabama did a couple of years ago, right? right? It is dependent on what Florida does the rest of the season if they lose to Georgia. There's just more paths, right? I mean, the the pathway for Florida coming into the season without COVID was you got one shot. You got to beat LSU and you got to beat Georgia. You could probably lose to LSU and beat Georgia and still make Mm -hmm. it to the SEC title game. And then you have to win the SEC title game. Or you got to run the table, lose the SEC title game, and maybe they take you in the playoff. But that's pretty unusual that you'd lose to the team that wins the SEC and then both of you would get to go. That's a much more realistic scenario now that that COVID is here and the Big Ten and the Pac-12 aren't playing. So I I think the paths are open in – there are more opportunities. And then the other thing is, is I, you know, we, we talk about recruiting a lot in terms of how Florida relates to Georgia and Alabama. One thing we don't talk about is how they relate to Kentucky and South Carolina and Missouri and Vanderbilt and the teams that they play 
in the East. And, and the reality is, is that they should win those games. So that coach you talked about having to play five underdogs or win five games where you're an underdog, mm-hmm. Florida's only going to have one game where they're an underdog this year. Or at least they should only have one game where they're an underdog this year, and that's going to be the game against Georgia. And even then, in November, they may not be an underdog anymore. So, so yeah, right now that's the only one, and by that time, you never know. <laughs> so, so you know, it, it's not it's it is not a inconceivable thing that Florida would would win one game as an underdog and then run the table the rest of the way. And if they do that, they're probably in. I, I think you're going to be able to lose. I think if you go ten and zero and lose the SEC title game, yeah, you will likely be able to still be in the playoff just because there isn't going to be anybody else to choose from. And, you know, I mean, it may be – it'll be fun. We'll get to root against Notre Dame, which is like a pastime of mine anyway. If Notre Dame's playing Clemson in the championship game in the ACC, and if Clemson smacks them, then there will be a second SEC team going. It does sort of devalue the SEC championship a little bit just yeah. because, you know, okay, Alabama beats Florida or Florida beats Alabama, and they both go to the playoff. Um, but I think there are more slots at least available to SEC teams, and, and they'll probably fill them. As far as the the idea of whether Jamie Newman leaving really opens up the window, I, no, <laughs> because we've never seen the guy play at Georgia, right? I mean, it's it's not like Jake Fromm decided to opt out this year yeah. and af- after you know his 17 and 18 seasons where he expected him to come in in 19 and play really, really well. This is a guy who really was kind of showed glimpses at Wake Forest, but wasn't really that great, and especially from a statistical perspective. And then you were going to plug him into an offense where he hadn't really had any opportunity to 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 study, or and it was a whole new offense for the for Georgia. I, the only thing I would say in terms of it being Florida's best chance is I wrote something last week about the way recruiting works in this extra year of eligibility. And I think Florida's going to be able to use that to its advantage to build up depth over the next couple of years. Obviously I want them to get Georgia this year because I think that's important from a recruiting perspective. And I do think that having Kyle Trask coming back and all the experience gives them a really good shot. But whereas I would have said, this is like a must have, you have to win Georgia this year. I do think some of the recruiting and the extra year of eligibility that COVID's brought on may end up benefiting the Gators down the road in a way that it doesn't benefit Georgia. And talking about that experience, that goes to the next point here and more Florida-Georgia talk here from ESPN because they're, they're breaking down the fourth college football playoff spot, and they group Florida and Georgia together. Uh, not separate. <laughs> they put Florida and Georgia right here together in, in, in one pairing. Uh, so he goes, let's assume – this is from Bill Connolly uh, on ESPN. He's basically saying, let's assume the most straightforward possible result this fall. And kind of kind of going to your point, Will, is you know just, it, it may be kind of easy to kind of – plan out the way the season is going to go just just a bit right now but let's assume the most straightforward possible result is fall that's alabama clemson and oklahoma win their respective conferences finish with zero or one loss each and make their sixth sixth and fifth college football playoff appearances respectively uh so who who gets the fourth spot is what Connolly's asking he goes 10 um 10 are most likely teams he in his eye here but he has florida and georgia together now most likely in the fourth spot. He goes, he can, I can talk myself into chaos all I want, but chaos will require both Georgia and Florida to drop a close game or two in the regular season then maybe get handled pretty well by Alabama in the conference title game. If the Dogs or Gators roll to 10-0 and or maybe 9-1, and this exercise is mostly moot, kind of going back to your point, Will, uh, there. So he goes, a reason for picking Florida is continuity. One of the many theories we discussed this offseason, and Will, I think you and I brought this up really early, pretty much before anybody did, <laughs> when discussing COVID and spring football and how continuity and not having a whole lot of experience 
and the spring was going to hurt teams. But because a reason for picking Florida as continuity, one of the many theories we discussed this offseason was whether continuity might have more of an impact on teams than it normally does. With spring practices eliminated and practices altered, might there be an added bonus for a team that already knows itself, its culture, and its coaches? If so, there are some other teams that could benefit. Uh, below is a list, a list of FBS teams that are playing this fall that – um, so A, are playing this fall, B, have a head coach entering at least his third season, C, return last year's offensive and defensive coordinators, and D, rank in the top 50 of uh, Bill Connolly's returning production rankings. Uh, so he has Florida, you know, AP number six. He has Florida 46 in returning production. Number nine, Texas A&M was 16th in his returning production. Number 13, Cincinnati, 26 in his returning production. And this maybe, Will, is where maybe the experience and the continuity maybe falls on its face a little bit. Number 15, Iowa State, and they were 43rd. Three spots ahead of Florida in returning production. And they lost to Louisiana <laughs> this past weekend. So well, your, your buddy Tim Brando had them sixth this year. So uh, he, Oh, he's... Timmy B. <laughs> oh, Timmy B. Well, I mean, again, we don't I like think... each other very much. <laughs> well, I think Iowa State sort of fits that profile, right? You've, you've got Brock Purdy coming back. Yep. You've got a guy who completed 66% of his passes last year for 8.4 yards per attempt. And you go, hey, if he takes the next, next step forward, then Iowa State's going to be really, really good. And then he just put up a complete stink bomb <laughs> against Louisiana. 45% completion percentage, 4.1 yards per attempt, one interception, a QB rating of 74.8. I mean, here's the reality. If Kyle Trask comes out and plays like garbage – it isn't going to matter what kind of continuity we have. It's, uh, you know, it, it's lights out. Same thing, I think, when you look at Kansas State. You know, Skylar Thompson actually didn't play too poorly for Kansas State, but at the same time, you know, that's a team that, you know, Chris Kleeman only has one year there, but it's sort of a continuity of the Snyder regime. And they played pretty well last year, and then this year come out and, and lose their opening game. So, and, and then even when you think about Georgia Tech, right? I mean, you got Blackman coming in. Obviously, the the coaching staff has changed, but I think we'd all agree that just about any coaching staff upgrade would probably be an upgrade on the Willie Taggart era. <laughs> and you know, they come out, and Blackman's got a lot of experience, and they've got a lot of guys who are experienced on that team. Georgia Tech comes out with Sims and is able to win that game, and really. You know, the game, the score was 16-13 there, but Georgia Tech dominated that game. And and so I, I'm hesitant to say. And I'll throw say, one more, Will, at you. That wasn't, it wasn't a loss, but Ian Book didn't play that good either against Duke. I mean, that was – he, he it was a very subpar performance. And another quarterback like Brock Purdy, who's listed up there with Kyle Trask in, you know, quarterback rankings and continuity and having a whole lot of experience coming back. And Purdy and Ian Book, both experienced quarterbacks, didn't play too well in their first games. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, guys are used to having that East Tennessee State warm-up. They're used to having a whole offseason where they're working with their coaches. They're used to seeing the speed of the game all offseason. That's not necessarily something they've gotten. And, you know, hey, here's the reality is that everybody's going to respond to the pandemic and the limitations that it's put on them differently. I, I suspect that Mullen and his staff are going to have a really good comprehensive plan for the players I expect Trask to play at the same level because let's be honest, if anybody's used to not playing and then having to step in, it should be Kyle <laughs> Trask. Good so, point. Good so, point. You know, I mean, I but I do think it's it's relevant to look at the teams that have had a lot of continuity and go, huh? Maybe continuity isn't as important as we think it is. Maybe what's important is the guy's actual ability, and you know. 
the reality is though, if I'd have looked at if I'd have looked at Purdy, I would have said, yeah. Iowa State's going to win this game handily. And then he goes out and plays like garbage. So those sorts of things happen. I, I think you can't necessarily predict them. I would suspect that the experience is going to mean a lot for Florida. But it's not a guarantee. You can't just go out and, and kick off and say, oh, I'm playing Louisiana. I'm going to win. And certainly Florida doesn't have any of those, right? I mean, Old Miss is going through a lot of transition, but you, I expect them to be better under Lane Kiffin. And if they're better and Florida doesn't show up, they're going to get beat. And that's maybe the challenge when it comes to getting to the playoff is that you know, you're probably not getting to the playoff 7-3. and three. You nope. might win the East 7-3, and three, nope. but you're not going to get to the playoff 7-3. and three. So you know, if, if you go out and play a, an SEC opponent and you just strap it up and think, I'm going to be able to win because I'm a more talented team – that's not the way this conference works. And, you know, Florida – or, I'm sorry, Georgia saw that last year against South Carolina. They clearly sort of slept walked through that game, and South Carolina got them at the end. A couple of years ago, I think Florida kind of thought that against Kentucky, and Kentucky got them, so, and, and definitely against Missouri. And Missouri got them. And so you can't go out there and take any opponent light, lightly. That's one of the reasons why the four non-conference games are a big deal. It's one of the reasons why people think Arkansas may not win a game this year, right? It's just – Well, is that, Will, and going to Florida's point – it's tough to go undefeated for Florida. They've had one team in 95 go undefeated for a regular season. Nobody else has, no other Gator team has done it. It's hard to do even with a regular schedule. And now you just added 10 SEC teams. Well, and again, you look at the teams that beat them in those undefeated seasons. It was, you know, it was Ole Miss in 2008. It was Auburn mm-hmm. in, yep. in, in 2006. Um, you know, Florida State obviously and, got them in, yeah. in, in 96. But Yeah, so you had 95 and 96 back-to-back, but, you know, that wasn't the SEC like it is now. <laughs> no, it was it was Spurrier's SEC back yeah. then, and and once you got to the Urban Meyer era, and and especially the Saban era, then it became a little bit a little bit more difficult to traverse. But you know, hey, that's one of the reasons why it's good, right? I mean, if Florida goes seven and three this year, okay, that's probably worst case scenario, but it, it but it doesn't eliminate their goals, and that's maybe one of the things. Um, one of the arguments I've made for the playoff is that I don't like it because it's more inclusive. I like the idea that a game in September matters. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that's going to be taken away this year because, you, you know, Florida could lose to Ole Miss, run the table, and still end up in the playoff. Yeah, that happened in 2008, but a lot of things kind of had to hit right for Florida to get back up into the championship game. Um, that won't be the case this year, but, you know, it's it's a different world in college football, and it's going to be fun regardless. No, all right. All right. Let's go to uh, next questions here. Uh, so Tyler Fornis at the Real Forno uh, says, "Are you guys expecting Kyer Elam to be treated by Todd Grantham as a de facto shutdown corner, cornerback one in this defense, or will it fall on the shoulders of Marco Wilson?" And the next question kind of we'll go keep it here in the secondary from Maverick uh, LMII twenty three. Uh, do you? Th- think Stewart ends up being the guy at star if so what happens to Bernie so back to the first one Will from uh, Tyler here Kyrie Elam as the uh, de facto cornerback one I think Florida has a luxury of not necessarily having to designate somebody as that number one I think if they want Marco Wilson to just be stay on maybe one side of the field they can do that if they want Kyrie Elam to stay on the other side of the field they can do that if they want to match up Marco Wilson on one receiver they can feel confident in doing that if they want Kyrie Elam to be able to, to, to be that de facto lockdown guy. They can do that as well. But, you know, we've seen and we've heard through all these press conferences so far that Marco Wilson's still going to play in that star role uh, a bit this season. So Kyrie Elam, I, I think he won't probably line up in that nickel spot. So if you want to call him cornerback one just because I don't think he's going to move around as much as Marco Wilson, then, okay, you can label him that. But I think there's some confidence uh, in from Todd Grantham if 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 
when Florida's playing Georgia and Pickens is lined up out there, he can put Marker on him or he can put uh, Kyrie either on him. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to recognize anybody who watched that Jaguars game this weekend recognizes how special C.J. Anderson was. And so I don't think you're just going to replace him with one guy, no matter how good they are, right? I mean, Kyrie Lim's going to be a true sophomore. Marco Wilson, we've talked quite a bit about him coming back from a knee injury, and that knee injury last, you know, it usually takes two years to get back. Chances are he's going to have an extra step this year. I think Florida's secondary will be really good. Um, I think a lot of whether, whether it's important is going to be tied to the defensive line. So if Florida can get credit, can get pressure with four guys – then the defensive backs are going to look outstanding. If Florida has to bring guys on a blitz, they're going to have to put people on an island. And you know, I suspect they'll probably put Elam on an island more often than they will Wilson. But I also mm. suspect they'll probably have Wilson on the better receiver. I think that's probably how it'll be, how it'll shake out. Like you said, I think they'll move him into the star, but I think they'll do that selectively. So mm-hmm. if the opposing defense, or I'm sorry, if the opposing offense brings a receiver into the slot that they like the matchup of Marco Wilson versus that receiver then you probably see Wilson slide into the star to be able to take the guy in the slot. If they keep the guy on the outside, then Wilson's going to play on the outside a lot. I I think Wilson is going to be the guy that they're going to say he's going to be our corner who takes the best receiver. But part of that is making sure the second receiver can't get off the ground, and that's going to be Elam's job. You know, you probably give the – you shade the safety over towards the best receiver, give Wilson a little bit of help, and then you leave Elam out on an island if you can do that. So it's really a question of – can he prove that he's not going to give up the big play if he doesn't have safety help over the top? And then, and then, you know, what kind of strides has Wilson taken during the offseason? All things that we've heard have been very, very positive. But again, this is sort of an offseason unlike <laughs> any other. And so, um, you know, we always make fun of the offseason lies all offseason long. And now there just really hasn't been an opportunity for offseason right. lies until fall camp. So <laughs> uh, I'm not listening to anybody. I think they're all throwing up smoke screens. You probably got, you know, probably got half your defensive backs who are who are out of shape or something not florida but you know there are teams yeah, yeah, that have yeah. half of their position groups that are out of shape and they're like oh we're doing great we're gonna we're gonna be just fine and I, yeah I, I, this is the time of year where everything is good yeah everything's fine and, and mm-hmm. again i think florida has options and that and that's the big thing you know the question about Stewart at star i don't think so i think they need help at safety <laughs> i yeah. think i think you know bernie is going to they have talked a lot about having guys who can who can be versatile. So, And it's cross-training for COVID to me. You know, we've heard Bernie or we've heard Stewart at Star, and I really think, you know, just because of what we talked about, talked about at the beginning of this episode, COVID, and you just don't know where it's going to hit, cross-training is really, really important right now. Yeah, well, and that's – it's funny. The, the versatility that they have – professed has always been to me sort of a cover for we didn't actually recruit a three down guy so we got to have people sort of flip in and out depending upon whether we need coverage or whether we need somebody to stop the run but in this case the versatility really helps right having a guy who's not necessarily a true corner but has cover skills like all the stuff that Trey Dean has learned while he's played corner and safety or I'm sorry corner and star is going to really help him if they need him at safety all the stuff that Amari Bernie has learned while playing star is really going to help him if he's got to play linebacker. And so those sorts of things, the fact that they've been preparing for that really for three years now, I think probably has an opportunity to pay off this year, particularly on the defensive side. Well, uh, a different style of three down player. They could be three down players, just maybe in different positions. <laughs> All right. If you're buying it, that's fine, Dave. But, uh, <laughs> I got to be honest. If, if you give me Ray Lewis, I'll, I'll take Ray Lewis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, as opposed to having to have a coverage linebacker and a, and a run-stopping <laughs> linebacker. But, you know, hey, I mean, the reality is Florida's got a lot of really good players. And they've got guys who've proven they can be three-down players. Um, I, I think 
Um, like you said, I, I think the no one is going to be a staple at any position just because you're going to have to get guys reps even early in the year. And you're going to see a lot of rotating around because if something happens and you don't have somebody, you're going to need to have somebody else who can step in. And that's going to even include the freshmen, right? I think one of the things that's going to be interesting is, you know, can Florida get an early lead in in the game against Ole Miss where all of a sudden they can bring in those guys and get them some experience, the true freshmen in particular, get them some well, experience. To, and, and to extend that, this next question was from Lucas Mann and Gator Fan twelve twenty. Which freshmen are you most excited to see? Is he says for him it's Gervon Dexter and Xavier Henderson. So uh, continue your thoughts with that in mind. Well, I mean, I, I think everybody wants to see Dexter, right? Yeah. I mean, the the five star yeah. guy who's uh, who put up something like 150 tackles or something <laughs> last year at high school is, is certainly somebody that people want to see. I, I think uh, you know the, the the guys that I'm interested in seeing are the guys in the defensive backfield. So there you go. Travis Johnson is one I'm picking up there. We talked about star a little bit there and early. Returns are good, of course, but you know, I, my thing is he won't have to be forced into action. So I think that's one reason I'm excited to see him is because I think they can you know, kind of pick their spots of where they want to put him in there at. Well, I think somebody like Derek Wingo, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you've got you've got uh, David Reese leaving, and so you're going to need somebody who can step in a linebacker. Um, Wingo obviously characterizes an outside linebacker, but really, from everything that we've seen or everything we've heard at least and seen in high school is a really explosive player who's, who may be one of those three down guys that you can put in there and, and it'll make a difference right off the bat. Jahari Rogers, a cornerback, right? Highly rated guy. We're talking about Elam. We're talking about Wilson, but if you want to slide Wilson in to that star, who's going to be the other corner? Is it going to be somebody like Jahari Rogers or is it going to be guys like, uh, you know, some Kimbrough, Chester Kimbrough Kim, yep. or, or guys like that from, from the previous year. Um, same thing with Ethan Pouncey, right? Is Pouncey going to be able to going to be able to step in? So, um, and even I'll tell you, the guy I'm most excited to see is I'm wondering whether they're going to have some packages for Anthony Richardson. Yep, there and go. I was going to bring that up. And I I really 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 am looking forward to the three quarterback debate that we have next year <laughs> when Kyle Trask decides to stay and we end up debating between Kyle Trask, Gabriel Jones, and Anthony Richardson. But, I would do one final episode of Gators Breakdown and call it. We'll, we'll, I'll quit Gators breakdown after that. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, look, the, the guy has shot up the recruiting boards. He's yeah. a huge dude, seems to have a big arm, and and certainly has the athletic ability to, to progress. And interestingly, the the most important guy may be Joshua Braun. I mean, when, yeah. you think, when you Man, think about quit, quit the guys. Quit reading my mind, see. Will. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got all these guys, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's a linebacker. Oh, yeah, it's a wide receiver. Oh, yeah, it's a quarterback. It's like, oh, wait, our worst position last year by far was offensive line. And the question is, if you got a guy who can step in, is is somebody like Braun going to be able to step in immediately and make a difference? Particularly if you get an injury or two up there, you know, you, you, you can't have a drop-off as you're heading into the meat of the schedule. You know, when you start playing LSU and you end up in, with Georgia and even get to the SEC championship game, you're going to need guys who can step in. So I think it's going to be really interesting. I, I, early in the year, if Florida can get some leads where they can get these guys reps in sort of no-risk situations – It'll be really important because they're going to need them in game three, four, and five, six, seven, and eight. I mean, you know, down the line, they're going to need those guys. The question is going to be, are they ready and have they gotten the reps? And Mullen has not been somebody who has played true freshman on a regular mm-hmm. basis. 
He's not even been a guy who's played redshirt freshman on a regular <laughs> basis. And so one of the questions is going to be, does he integrate the young guys? Is it a trust issue or is it just a roster management issue? And if it's a roster management issue, those issues have gone away this year. So I'm looking forward to seeing who we, who we see out of those out of the last two recruiting classes. Well, for Braun, in a way, for me, it's kind of like how Ethan White did. You know, came about you know the last half of the season, you started seeing him inserted more and all that. And it was part of it was I don't necessarily think it was necessity. I think he kind of earned his way throughout practice, throughout the whole season, and kind of just, hey, look, he's shown up. He's earned a spot to go out there and play. Now, yeah, of course, you had a player leave later on in the season, but he was a true freshman. He could have been you know, behind a number of players, he earned his way to, to get there and play. And I think kind of for Braun and maybe the, maybe the same way, I think we see him inserted along the way where he's not necessarily forced in, but maybe a way he's just earned his way in uh, as the season progresses there. So uh, one reason there, and yeah, uh, Xavier Henderson, of course, I'm as well. I mean, the picture he posted of him and TJ, um, to get, they were standing right beside each other, and he towers over CJ. And you know, with Justin Shorter just getting eligible too, I'm just like, man, Florida has got some big receivers, some tall receivers, big-bodied receivers uh, there. So maybe Xavier Henderson using that big, tall body, getting downfield with some explosive plays, uh, and just taking the top off of defenses there. So next question from uh, Floggator at Floggator Five. Um, he says, how much improvement has Slayton truly made? I'll go there for it. We really don't know because <laughs> we just haven't seen anything this fall camp. I've asked around a bit for, for some players and, you know, pretty much if, uh, if the, if you, if he wants to be good, he can be really good. It's all, all about, you know, kind of him at this point and, and, and putting on himself to take that next step, uh, there. And he goes, obviously much deeper with edge rushers this year. How would, this uh, this year's first two edge rush guys compared to 18 and 19, though, uh, expect better pass rush all around or not as effective, but more consistent due to depth. Uh, that's an interesting there, one there, Will. Um, he says first two edge rusher guys compared to this year's first two edge rushers. I'm assuming Cox and Moon. Uh, their early return on Cox, of course, or beginning of fall camp, was he was kind of living up to that five-star billing after transferring from Georgia. Look, I... I'm not worried about pass rushers under Todd Grantham. I'm worried about pass rushers under Todd Grantham when they play Georgia and when they play LSU and they play the better offenses. We, we, we've discussed that plenty of times. Uh, he's going to have guys that get to the quarterback. He's going to have guys that can create havoc. He's going to have guys that get in the backfield, get to the quarterback time and time again. Can he have the guys that get into the backfield time and time again when when it truly matters? So that's that, that's my big thing. Brenton Cox, Jeremiah Moon, Mamu Diabate, whoever it is, Chatfield, I'll – name many names you know you talked about depth you asked about depth there yes it does go deep there but who are the guys that's going to show up in crunch time in the big games well i mean you know that that's been the question ever since mullen got here the the they've had guys who can get pressure you know even against burrow against lsu in 2018 they were able to get pressure um but in the games they've lost those are games where either guys didn't maintain their gap discipline or guys couldn't get to the quarterback. And, you know, you saw it last year. We've mentioned a few times on the show this offseason with the dagger to Lawrence Cager that uh, that ended that game. That was because, you know, Mullen – or I'm sorry, Grantham sort of sat in in zone shells the entire game and it allowed Fromm to pick them apart. They finally needed to force Georgia to, to punt. He comes with a blitz and, and Fromm destroys him because they blow coverage. So and, – and can't get pressure even with the blitz. And – 
And yeah, I mean, Georgia has been a more physical team. Obviously, two guys drafted in the first round of the NFL who were on the offensive line. So you hope that that helps as well, mm -hmm. right? That that not only is Florida maybe taking a step forward up there, but Georgia's taking a step back. And I do want to go back to Slayton a little bit. Like you, you don't know what he's going to like, what he's going to do. But one thing I think that that we should note is he got he got manhandled against South Carolina last year. And, you know, I'm actually looking at a tape from an article that I wrote right now where I see him getting pushed back five yards from the line of scrimmage at the snap. And South Carolina was able to run the ball. And mm -hmm. if you remember last year, there was a – there was a um, LSU and South Carolina back-to-back. -back. Yeah, there was a, yeah. a series of games where Florida really struggled against the run. And that had a lot to do with their defensive tackles. And in the South Carolina game, it had a lot to do with Slayton. And I'm not sure whether he got embarrassed or I'm not sure whether he just got healthy or I'm not sure exactly what happened. But from that game on, he was excellent. Because remember, and, the, the Georgia game was after that. We were so worried that about that run game and DeAndre Swift all going to run over to, all over Florida, and it didn't happen. Well, I mean, again, if you, I don't know what happened. I don't mm -hmm. know that you can pinpoint something. I have no inside information. But I remember watching him in that South Carolina game and going, oh, man, he's just getting – he's like he's on skates. And then you looked at him two games later, and all of a sudden he was really holding the point of attack up front. And, and maybe it's just as simple as a switch finally went on, that he got his role, that he stopped trying to sort of dodge the guy in front of him and said, my job is to take on one or two offensive linemen and hold the point of attack and let everybody else come in and funnel to the ball. And, you know, it took getting embarrassed by LSU and getting embarrassed by South Carolina to do that. Like I said, maybe he got healthy. Maybe he wasn't healthy at mm -hmm. that point in time. But but there was a distinct difference from that South Carolina game on. And he started that, getting draft love by some by some people later on in the season. Yeah, well, let's be honest. I mean, I think people saw it, right? I mean, yep. when you against Virginia, he was really good. Against Georgia, he was really good. Against Florida State, he was excellent. So, granted, the level of talent. Well, I mean, I guess you can't even say that, right? I mean, South Carolina and LSU, LSU maybe, but South Carolina is certainly not more talented than Georgia. He was able to hold up in that game pretty well. And then you go to Virginia, pretty good team. Florida State, a talented team, even though their offensive line struggles. So maybe not the best comparison. But again, I go back to, yes, we haven't seen anything in the offseason to say there's going to be hope. But it's almost like two years ago with Franks. Mm -hmm. Where and the Florida offense, where if you'd have taken the first eight or nine games of the season, you would be like, oh, God, this is going to be awful. <laughs> and then the question was, are the last four games a mirage? Mm -hmm. Or was he able to turn it around, and is he going to be this quarterback coming into 2019? Before he got hurt, he was that pre he was that quarterback coming into 2019. He, he was he was playing well until he got hurt, making a few mistakes. Obviously, some of the interceptions he threw against Miami and Kentucky were killers. But in terms of his efficiency, he was playing really really well. And and I think the hope is that you see the same thing from Slayton. That if you take the first nine games of the year, first eight games of the year, you go ugh. But then you start looking at the back half of the year and say, hey, if he turns into that player, it could be a real game changer for Florida, especially with Dexter, because now all of a sudden you have some options of, of rotating those guys in, but also playing them at the same time and giving Dexter some pass rush opportunities um, with some of the strength that he has. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, of Slayton and Campbell, uh, you know, starting their uh, defensive tackle there in the middle. I, I like that group. Definitely want to see Dexter and, and create some more depth uh, behind those guys. Last one, Will, before we uh, sign off here, Swo uh, Brian Swerverlin at Elkhart Gator. He goes, from Indiana, I was able to attend my first game at the Swamp last year. We were lucky enough to see Florida destroy Florida State. They're my second most hated rival behind Tennessee. Which rival are you most excited to play against this year besides Georgia and why? Love the pod. Never 
miss it. So, yes, I mean, he, I'm, I'm glad he put the uh, besides Georgia because that's exactly where I was going. Uh, but uh, I'm going to say, probably surprisingly, I know LSU is defending national champions, and that game is always brings out the best in, in Florida fans and, and just the, the hype and everything behind that game. I'm going Tennessee, Will, uh, just because it's the last game of the season. I think there's going to be a lot riding on it for Florida. And Tennessee fans just don't know when to shut up. And they, I mean, no matter how many times Florida beats them, they, every offseason, it's like game, those previous games didn't happen. And Tennessee faithful feel all confident again until Florida has to go to Knoxville and, and knock them down again. But uh, I think just because that Tennessee game moving to the end of the season – Florida's going to be, uh, I think, you know, I think we're going to have to win that game to make sure they go to Atlanta. Don't fall, don't lose a game you probably shouldn't. I don't think you're going to have some big lead over Georgia to where that game probably doesn't matter. I think you're going to go have to beat Tennessee. They're going to want to ruin your season and all that by playing the last game of the season. So I, I'm right now, I think I'll, I'll lean barely Tennessee or real issue. I mean, I guess. The, if the question's rivals, we're really talking LSU, Georgia, and Tennessee, right? Yep. yep. I mean, so a loss to LSU would be tough, but you'd be like, okay, they're a good team. They get us every once in a while. We're kind of used to that. A loss to Georgia would be tough because this is a season where you think you can get them. But, uh, but you know, it's Georgia. You still sort of expect them to be really good. A loss to Tennessee would just suck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, I realize you're you're in Knoxville, but I mean, you know, the stadium probably won't be full, and you know, chances are they will have lost their first six games of the year, and then will be on a three game win streak coming in, and everybody will be talking about how they've righted the ship. And you know, the last time we played in December, obviously, was 2001. You know, Florida. May, I mean, this may be a play-in game for the for the playoff mm-hmm. right i mean it's entirely conceivable that this is the game that gets them into the playoff not the sec championship the next mm. the next week which is or two weeks later which is sort of interesting um i, I still go with lsu i mean let, yeah. let's be honest we've beaten tennessee like 25 the last 26 times we've played <laughs> them or something that's not accurate but it seems like i mean we've only lost once in, in the last couple yeah. of decades that it, you're not a rival anymore Right, I mean, you can talk all the crap you want on Twitter, but you're not a rival anymore. Beat us twice in a row, right? Like, <laughs> like actually win two games in a row, have a quarterback who you could keep in the entire year, not because of health, but because of actual performance, and don't lose by four touchdowns to to, to Alabama. And and maybe I'll start to take you seriously, but yeah, those games um, hadn't even been close. The last I mean, two years. you know, here's the reality: is that is that Florida has just demolished Tennessee since Dan Mullen came to the town. And other than the real close game in 2006, they've demolished Tennessee in the Urban Meyer era. So basically in the Meyer-Mullen era, Tennessee has been just a fly on the back of, of, of Florida, and LSU has been the one who's been more of the thorn. And even in seasons when, when Florida has been the better team, those games are always 24-21, and there's some ridiculous fake punt or, you know, something stupid that you're like, oh, the special teams will be ready this year. And then they're not. And, yeah, so <laughs> everybody I, I, in the stadium knows a fake field goal is coming, but it, <laughs> it happens anyway. So clearly everybody everybody knows George is the big rivalry game this year. But, you know, the season changer, I think, is LSU. I mean, because if you lose to LSU, I think it tells you something about your team that makes you a little bit uncomfortable going to that Georgia game. 
If you're undefeated coming in the Tennessee game, you should win that by three touchdowns. If you've lost to only Georgia, you should still beat Tennessee. I just, you know, again, I get it because of where it is on the schedule. Usually the Tennessee game is sort of a barometer for, yep, we're still better than them. And then you just move on in the schedule. Um, you know, this year, maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, I just don't think Tennessee's going to be. Every year we hear Tennessee's back. Every year we've heard, you know, oh, this is the year. And then every year they fall flat on their face when it comes to an actual big game. Um, if the Florida game's a big game, I'm going to plan on them falling flat on their face again. I'm going to love it. Don't get me wrong, right? I mean, I, I will absolutely um, give them hell for it and, and enjoy it. Um, <laughs> but that's more because they're so loud. They're like the yippy dog, right? Like that you can just kick across the room if you need to. Not that I'm kicking dogs over here, but, you know, they're, they're the yippy <laughs> dog versus – you know, I mean, LSU just won a national championship. Georgia just played for one a couple of years ago. Uh, forgive me. Those are the ones I take more seriously. Um, hey, Tennessee beat, uh, beat Alabama. At least play Alabama close. Play Florida close. Um, you know, th- there are no FCS opponents this year, though, so they should be all right there. <laughs> yeah, they don't have to worry about uh, um, Georgia State this year and in, in, in that uh, fiasco. I just hope they bring back the trash can on the sideline. I I enjoyed that immensely under Butch Jones. They they should bring that back. Maybe we can get maybe we can start it. <laughs> maybe we can buy a uh maybe for Tennessee we can buy a cutout of the trash can and put it in their stadium. Yeah, I don't know. I went there for a game a couple of years ago. It was a lot of fun. I had a good time yeah, with I my brother. Yeah, remember saying that. I had a good time with my brother. I got an awful lot of glee out of the fact that the porta potties all over campus campus were Tennessee orange and cream sick orange and creamsicle so you know it's like yeah that that that's appropriate it's actually a really pretty campus um you know not as pretty as Gainesville but still a pretty campus it was a fun place to go see a game got a little bit of crap from the Tennessee fans but Florida was up you know 14 nothing in the first like three minutes so everybody sort of shut up left us alone and and then there weren't any Tennessee fans at the end so it was great (laughs) well man you got coming up a reading reaction yeah, man, season's about to start, so we're yeah. going to have some preview stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks where we actually look at um, some of the things. One of the things I'm working on right now is I'm not sure whether it'll be a video or an article, but um, working on some offensive line stuff where you know I've got some of the All-22, and you can see some of the areas where maybe – you know I know there was a lot of complaining about the tackles and a, little, and a fair amount of complaining about the guards, um, but the question is where does it start? I, I think one of the things we see last year – is that there was an awful lot of time where plays got blown up just because of the defensive tackles against Buchanan up front as center. So take a look at that. And then, uh, you know, start getting into the previews, right? I mean, the season, how it sets out makes a difference. What do we want to see from Ole Miss? What do we want to see against South Carolina? What do we want to see against Texas A&M? What can we expect? Those sorts of things. So that'll be coming up in the next couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, hey, we're, we're not too far away, man. What is it, 11 days? Yeah, yeah. And, uh yeah, it's it, funny we we didn't do like our normal opponent previews this year. It was just it's it was kind of hard to do it. You didn't really know what was going on with these teams and who was opting out and who was actually going to be on the roster. So I just found it best to kind of maybe you know for at least one season preseason right before the season started to kind of lay low with the opponent previews just because there's just so many questions out there and it changes. You know, by the time you would listen to it, maybe something else would, would have changed and kind of be old news. Well, and, and that's next week, right? I mean, Ole Miss right. is next week's opponent preview. So, I mean, one of the things, it was a little bit hard this past weekend where you had Florida State out there playing, and it was fun to see them. But usually Florida State's losing at, at noon, 
and, and then we could tune in to see the the SEC play at you know three thirty and seven o'clock. It was weird to see Florida State kind of in prime time because the Lightning, but see Florida yeah. State in prime time and there not be any SEC games going on. Um, <laughs> but I will say that uh, you know I do have a problem because I did watch the entire Kansas game. Um, just because Instead of late. I have enjoyed college football being back Hell yeah. and I wanted to see whether the Mad Hatter had to come back in him and, oh, and, and, and he didn't. So Coastal Carolina, I gotta be honest, man. Like when it comes to the playoff, two I'm years be, in a row, I'm going to be mad if Kansas plays Oklahoma close and then they're like, Oh, Oklahoma's in the playoff over, over an SEC team. It's like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Like they, 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 had, they had an easier schedule than Clemson. Like what's going on here? Yeah. Man, yeah, watch Clemson too. Uh, we uh, that wasn't going to be a game from the get go. We knew that. So, yeah, well, I mean, you <sighs> know, it's it's the almost competitive conference, yeah. man. Like yeah. they are uh, helping prop up Clemson one game at a time. Not many good games this week either. Miami, Louisville headlined the uh, headlined the action this weekend. And I mean, I'm telling you, there's it's it's really barren <laughs> this weekend uh, for competitive games. Uh, so not not much to look at, but uh, Miami and Louisville prime time. Um, Saturday night before the SEC kicks off next week, and uh, we get all our uh, we get all happy. Yeah, man. I, you know what? Here's the reality: is that uh, every year we got a couple of cupcakes that we have to suffer through. All the SEC did this year was eliminate the cupcakes and start yep. two weeks later. So the real season starts on the 26th because we all know that the SEC is going to win the title and two of them are going to be in the playoff. So I'm looking forward to it. It's it's, it is, it's a lot like, you know, it feels like there's been an NBA game and, and now that the NFL is up and running. I mean, you know, the, the Nuggets played the Clippers the other day and I didn't even have any idea the game was going on because there was other football going on all day and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, we're kind of getting saturated with sports right now yeah. and it's only going to continue, but Saturdays are for college football. And, and once the SEC's back and rolling, um, you know, there's going to be a game I want to watch all day long. Um, I'm sure my kids will uh, be a little <laughs> bit antsy about it, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yeah. So uh, Gator panel, of course, uh, got announced. So we'll do that later this week. Uh, with some Gator Media members, so that that'll be uh, on uh, out uh, Thursday morning. So everybody, look out for that. Uh, will and I will be back next week. We, like, as Will said, we will preview Florida versus Ole Miss first game of the 2020 season. Hopefully for a college football playoff run for the Gators. And we'll we'll do our over unders that we always do, but we'll have to kind of think about doing it different this year with the 10 game schedule and have to how to re how to adjust the numbers for only 10 games. Over under number of COVID games missed. Oh. <laughs> over under number of different quarterbacks. That'll, that'll be fun. Um, yeah. You know, over under number of true freshmen who actually play. Um, yeah, go. it's a it's a weird year, man. It's been yeah. weird at work. It's been weird at home. Um, it's weird with your friends. Hopefully, we've been a little bit of light in in the uh, in the weirdness that everybody's sort of had this consistently coming into their coming into yeah. their iPhone or or on YouTube and been able to watch. And hopefully, we've been able to provide some of that. But hey, football's coming back, man. And it'll be weird. It'll be odd. But it's college football, man. Can't complain. Yep, in a season we're all excited for. So that's Will Miles. You can find him on Twitter at Will Miles SEC and his site read and reaction.com. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown. <laughs>